I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Paige St. John. I'm the host of the Los Angeles Times and Wondery's Man in the Window. And I'm glad to be here today on OPP. God bless everybody and welcome to another episode of OPP, Other People's Podcast is the TRL of podcasting. Every week we interview America's top podcasters to learn more about them and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is LA Times Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter, Paige St. John, host of the current number one podcast in the country, Man in the Window. In this crime investigative podcast, Paige, along with Wondery and the LA Times, uncover the never-before-revealed details about the infamous Golden State Killer, who would eventually become one of California's most deadly serial killers. In this episode, we get to learn more about Paige and her experience winning the Pulitzer Prize, her career as a journalist, we get her podcaster's picks, and of course, we get into her dope show, Man in the Window. So, without further ado, meet Paige St. John. What's up, Paige? How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm exhausted, but I'm doing great. <laughs> I mean, I totally understand why you would yeah. be exhausted. You are cranking out episodes right now, tearing up the, the podcast charts. I have producers that don't mind like tearing everything up like the day before release and saying, let's change this. And, <laughs> and f- flip segments around and, and then have me in the recording studio until eight o'clock at night. So it's been one of the, the great challenges on this podcast, but... Uh, lets us bump it up to another level. So instead of going with, you know, the the early versions, uh, there's this constant thinking about how can we tell that better? Or what are we missing here? What are people at this stage, because we're following a crime series at this stage, what are people going to want to know? So so constant revisions all all along the way. Now I've interviewed, um, I have two podcasts and I've interviewed some amazing folks. I've, I've, uh, a Grammy award winning or Emmy award winning, but I have never interviewed a Pulitzer Prize winning person. So this is a huge moment for me. For me too. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's because the Pulitzers are for primarily the written word. At least that's what I won mine for. Right. And, and podcasting is a whole different medium, a whole different uh, way to tell a story. So this is a crossover for me. Yeah. How do you even find out that you're being nominated for a Pulitzer Prize? Is there a nomination process? Do you just win it? Oh, oh, there is. There's the huge finger crossing process of, of you finish the work. In my case, I did an investigative project that took three years. And then it took another year to run in the paper for the whole project to roll out. And and then early the beginning of the next year, January, you're putting together the package and it's the newspaper that nominates you. Okay. Um, but I'm helping them pull together all the materials, all the testimonials. Uh, a thing that the Pulitzer committee really looks for is impact, not just what you did, but how did it change things? 
how did how did uh, it change public discussion even and and documenting that as part of the the nomination or the the entry package so it's a, it's like a book that you send off and then you just you cross your fingers and they're very tight-lipped they don't tell you the committees they don't tell you where you are who's thinking for what it you 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 feel because there's a fear that it'll become political that 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 managers and editors and what might lobby you know like they do in in the in the movies right right right. in hollywood right with all the billboards there's all this campaigning and 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 lobbying going on and they they try to insulate the judges and the pulitzers from that so it is literally silence and you don't know until the day the ball drops what happened to where you were you know is is there like a ceremony or or that takes place um well the announcements are an internal ceremony in newsrooms i've been in newsrooms where they had the bottle of champagne in the fridge just in case <laughs> and and then and it stays there in that refrigerator and nobody even mentions that it was there if they if it didn't happen right me i had i was in a i was in a, a like a depression i i felt like the piece it was incredibly well received in the community great impacts in florida this was how insurance companies were we're really holding homeowners hostage on hurricane insurance while they're going to the bank with billions of dollars that they're making. So it had the impacts that I wanted, but the day of the Pulitzers, I'm, I'm pretty self-defeated about it saying, okay, well, at least I was nominated, right? So I didn't wash my hair. I went into the feed store and got hay in my pickup truck. I drove that to the office. <laughs> so I'm really looking quite the farm girl. And, and the, I get pulled aside by the editor saying, you know, you, you might like um, clean up a little. <laughs> so, because there'll be announcements, I think it was at 10. And so I, I, I consented and went down to, um, I, it was a Monday and I tried to find a barbershop or a hairdresser that might be open. Well, tell you what, women's beauty salons are not open on Mondays. <laughs> So I, I found a barber willing to do my, to at least wash my hair for me and, and went into the newsroom and, and, and everybody gathered around the TV monitor where we're watching the news come in and there it was. And, wow. and it was, so it was a great moment. Uh, what is that? How does that uh, change uh, a writer's career uh, winning a Pulitzer? It's like getting a college degree. It's like you've graduated to another level and you're accepted, you're now established that you don't have to convince people that you can do the job because you, you, the award does that for you. So it's made my, my life a little easier and that people will listen to me when I come up with harebrained ideas, like let's do a podcast about women and rape in the 1970s and let it be about a highly publicized case like the golden state killer, but never really talk about him or the crime that way. Because it's mostly about the women. Uh, what, yeah. what does that validation feel like for you personally to be accepted by such a grand, a grand yeah. award? Well, well, my daughter, first of all, put me straight right away. She said, Mom, there's a new batch every year. <laughs> so, you know, you're special for 365 days. And then the bus moves down the road. Um, but I think well, for me, I felt like I'm the same person. I've been doing the same work beforehand and after that hasn't changed. So, um, so for me, it's like, well, I'm, I'm grateful that people recognize it, but it's the same stuff I've always been doing. Are you originally from California? 
Oh no, no. I'm originally from nowhere. Uh, grew up in the, <laughs> which I guess makes me a Californian <laughs> by birthright. Um, I grew up in the, I was born in Maine, grew up in the Midwest, mostly Illinois, Southern Illinois, Northern Illinois, parents on both ends of the state. Uh, and then when I got into journalism, I worked in Iowa, West Virginia, Tennessee, Michigan, Detroit, then Florida, and then out to California. Uh, how did you get into investigative journalism? Well, I like to tell when, I, especially when I teach to to journalism students, that all reporting is investigative journalism. Wow. There should not be a dividing line. Um, but that said, investigative journalism is is when you're doing reporting that people don't want you to do, and so the the hurdles are a little higher that you have to clear. You have to work a little harder um, to get to the truth of what's really happening. But for me, it started with um, feature writing. Really, I started as a doing more longer and longer, deeper and deeper feature stories. And then you begin to dig more and more and into what really happened to try to peel away the layers. And, and that's where I had my history is in that kind of narrative storytelling. Then when I switched over into pure investigative reporting, I lost that. I lost a lot of that ability to write and to dwell in the story and to, 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 to follow a, a, an arc, right? And, uh, and so now I'm coming full circle back to that. So uh, the news climate changing, you know, obviously with digital, uh, how has that affected your job, if at all? Has it made your job easier, more difficult? Uh, it's it's created new challenges, but incredible opportunities. The Pulitzer Project um, had a component that was entirely on the web, and that's a new thing. In fact, I think we were like only the second ever Pulitzer awarded that included a web component. Um PolitiFact being the one before us, which which is like a truth test for the things that politicians say. And, and it was an interactive database online. People could enter their home information and look up information about what their insurance, their hurricane risk is, what their insurance rates should be versus what they're actually paying. And then confidential information about the insurance companies that they were insured by and how risky they were. And and so you kind of like wrote your own narrative, but that's an entirely online component driven by databases. And and now with increasing, you know, shift into technology, we're doing more uh, visual, more audio, more video, uh, more interactive materials. And, and I think it really adds huge depth to stories and understanding you couldn't have otherwise. And, the, and that's why, well, this particular one I really love, and I'm looking for ways to apply that to future investigative stories that give you that those extra layers of understanding for the public. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Paige, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to get into your podcast, Man in the Window. Sure. Happy to do so. So Paige, uh, how did you first discover podcasting? Well, 
there's an interesting history in podcasting because um, it was like the, the the pager. Do you remember pagers? Yeah, be, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, and cell phones too. I ridiculed them as well. I said, who needs a cell phone? You could just find a payphone and call. So um, about a decade ago, my husband uh, started experimenting with using what was called podcasting to cover an, an event. It's a horse riding event in Tallahassee. He was in media affairs and he created a podcast that um, little crews and they all ran around with baseball caps that said podcast crew on them and recording the event. And then they created a, a small radio station for the signal so that you could listen to these interviews while you were attending this big event, this sprawling uh, equestrian event. And um, so that was early podcasting and and I thought this has no future <laughs> for number one there's no delivery vehicle right you how because how often are you at some kind of event where you can create you know just use some radio signals and ask people to try to tune in to listen like a radio show right um, so fast forward a decade later I'm doing a four-part print piece on uh, the man arrested in the Golden State Killer case, Joseph D'Angelo, and it had turned into more of a, a saga of women at the time. And I, and I produced the print material about a year ago. And, and then an editor at the paper, Shelby Grad, said, what about turning this into a podcast? And uh, they had done Dirty John the year before and had great success with it. This is a very different kind of story. Dirty John is more kind of detective noir told on a single story. This is a sprawling 300 and some crimes over a decade and a half across an entire state. It's a, it's a very different phenomenon, but um, for some reason I said yes (laughs) with no clue of what was it, it entailed. I thought I just basically, in fact, I thought we would just read my story into a microphone and that would be it, right? Yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I think he even listened. You think he even had Siri read my print copy to see if it would work. <laughs> well, then we we joined our collaborator, our partners on Dirty John was Wondery, and and that's where I got my crash course into podcasting and what really is involved in in, in it. Oh, uh, w- was there an adjustment coming from you know the print medium and being a writer into you now? you know, having a voice and having to tell a story? Was there an adjustment period for you? And how'd you get past that? Oh, huge, huge. And, and, and a huge blow to my ego too, because as a writer, you fall in love with your word. You're, 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 and there's a voice inside your head when you're writing. And, um, the moment you begin to try to speak it, you can't find that voice. The words don't work when when heard by the ear. You know, things that look great on print just don't sound good at all, or they're not clear. Um, and and so it was like starting all over. Uh, Karen Lois, the senior producer and editor on this, but what she really is is my podcast mom, and and constantly was telling me how to break complex sentences down, how to break down scenes, how to create scenes, and. I had to go back and re-record everybody three, four times with with various generations of equipment 
um, be, because my pocket recorder is where I started with, and we didn't use any of that audio. And by the end, I've got a shotgun mic, I've got headphones, I've got my Zoom, you, you know, and I'm saying, okay, let's do it again. And these these are like five-hour recording sessions with these women Ooh. that we're doing again and again. <laughs> so they have the patience of Job. But yeah, it's quite a challenge to to go from writing in, into the the soundscape of of uh, audio in the mind but so much more powerful oh speaking of powerful yeah. literally yeah. next to my bed over over there i have uh, a bat i listen to podcasts before i go to sleep right so i was listening to man in the window while i was going to sleep and it scared me half to death i'm going to terrify you a little more uh many of the, the because as this crime series went on they had loaded guns under their mattresses they were waiting for him it did no good they 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 did not have the half a second that they needed to reach for that gun let's get into the story like tell me the story of man in the window yeah well the the, from this perspective of the crimes it all began very innocently for the period with peeping Tom behavior, uh, a guy who would like look into the window and voyeuristically, you know, watch women uh, sometimes without clothes on or without his pants on. And, and, and so the cops called it peeping Tom or weenie waiver. And these were not crimes that anybody paid attention to. They even, even the people they were happening to just kind of wrote it off. Um, and, and then he started creeping into the bedrooms and, um, of, of women and watching them while they slept. Then he began creeping into bedrooms um, while, while people were away and ransacking the women's underwear. And you saw that in Visalia. And we're talking hitting like eight houses a night, uh, 125 ransackings in a year in this small town in, called Visalia. Um, and still not really a worry by for police until... The very first time he tried to abduct a girl, the father woke up and he killed the father, and and um, and, the, and that was the first murder. But then, in order to evade police, he just kept moving town, leaving town, showing up someplace else. Law enforcement agencies didn't talk to one another. If you cross the county line, you you kind of got a clean slate. You could start over and with with no worry that that they would come after you. And so he, he changed venues again and again, escalating into rape. We had more than 50 rapes. They began with rapes on single people, a woman or a young girl at home. Then he began attacking with entire families in the house, tying up the man, putting him you know, with plates and saucers on his back and threats of death if he, if he moved. Well, I took the woman into another room and raped her. He raped her like five to eight times. Not a... Most rapists would would um, rape and then run. And this guy lingered and he and he taunted his victims. He went into the kitchen, opened a beer, ate crackers, came back and raped her again. And and if the children woke up, he'd lock them in the bathroom. He tied one child to a bed frame. It's it's um it it became more and more terrifying. And 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 a whole community, Sacramento, was in hysteria by this time. Uh, when when he suddenly stopped, he left town. They didn't know is that in Southern California, people were now being killed. Now, at what point, what was the inception for you to investigate this story and eventually lead it to becoming a podcast? 
I was part of the team of reporters that rolled out the day that Joseph D'Angelo was arrested and charged with these crimes. And uh, I pulled the assignment of backgrounding who is Joseph D'Angelo. You know, the idea was that in two days, I could provide a profile of who he was. So a year and a half later, (laughs) this is what I have instead. Um, because there's not a lot of information on, on Joseph D'Angelo. He's in, and the court case has not progressed. He's not even had a preliminary hearing yet. And the more I dug, the more I realized that the victims for, in this case were the fascinating story, their experiences and how we treated these crimes in the seventies just blew my mind. They're so far removed from, from today's standards and ideas. What was your process in gathering um, gathering these stories and the investigative process behind A Man in the Window? Well, I began by trying to talk to people in Joseph D'Angelo's family um, and, and, and found some, some close people who would talk with me. And then I tried to reach his fiance, and, um, and she was basically on the run from the media stampede at the time. And, and that's Bonnie and Bonnie eventually called me up herself and began talking with me. Uh, she felt like she had a story to tell. And I said, I will give you that voice and it's totally up to you. I, you, you control what your story is. I don't. And, um, and then I began winning the same kind of confidence from women who'd been raped, you know, who'd been ordered into silence their whole lives by their parents or people around them, you know, you don't talk about rape. And then the case detectives then came on board. Confidential sources came on board. I began getting tons and tons of documents and records that I could not have done this project without kind of all the unseen material that, that we don't talk about. Uh, and, and the real final keystone was archives that Sacramento has these wonderful media archives of old TV footage from the day. And there's nothing like, there's no way to understand the seventies if you don't see it because it was such a wild time. How's it been seeing the reaction of man in the window going out into the world and and being received so well and, and, you know, claiming the number one spot. It was really uh, jaw dropping to see how quickly this caught fire, Uh, especially, and I knew it would really appeal to the true crime community. There's a very solid following of true crime. Right. But uh, what was really heartening for me is that this project um, was embraced by episode two of this other audience, this female audience or people who were saying this is not just true crime. This is about social context. It's about women. It's about rape. It's about how we treated and viewed the violence against women in the in the day. Through podcasting, I've, I've learned so much about myself you know, through other people. Uh, but what have you walked away personally uh, from this experience of Man in the Window and putting this project together? Um, other than a lot of new reporting tools, I think it's really helped improve my reporting technique, uh, listening to people more intently, not just, um, and I thought I was a very intensive in, uh, reporter and interviewer, but this has ramped that up a little bit be, uh, because now I listen to how they're speaking and probe more into their emotions as as they're talking to understand, you know, f- little more deeper layers of what's going on. That you need to do that in audio um, because that's what your listeners are, are are reacting to and hearing. 
and and now I realize I, I hope to bring that back into print too. Um, uh, that's uh, probably the main thing. So Paige, uh, we've hit a part of the show that's called our podcasters picks. Yes. And uh, this is where I ask uh, today's uh, subject to uh, tell me three podcasts that you love and enjoy and describe them to our audience. Well, of course, everything from the Wondery family, but I'm going to tell you that my all-time favorite uh, rocking podcast is Crime Town's Providence. I, I was, it was recommended for me to listen to it because it dealt with archival material. And, and I did, it did help teach me how to use our, you know, how you can make old archival audio and footage come alive again and seem like today. But the stories of Buddy Cianci and the, the third largest Cosa Nostra of the U.S. <laughs> is it, just amazing that the characters, and it's a wonderful t- storytelling. Um, I love the complexity of In the Dark, um, Madeline um, Barron, as she goes through the, the Curtis Flowers crimes, and just as a reporter watching how she peels that apart, it was fascinating to me. But my third pick is, because I am the, the mother of a 23-year-old who's living at home this summer, I listen, whether I want to or not, to every episode of Self Helpless, which is her favorite podcast. And then I began, so at first I'm like, yeah, it's in the background, I'm listening. But then I'm hearing these young women talk about issues like birth control in very frank, forward ways that it was such taboo in my generation. So now I'm addicted. Wow. And um, Paige, to wrap up the interview, why do you podcast? Because how else can you give a voice to women who were silenced? That that really comes down to that. That that was the only way that this story could be told. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Paige St. John, it is such an honor to have you on OPP. I love Man in the Window. Everybody go check it out. And get your baseball bat. <laughs> yeah. Get your baseball bat for sure. This is now going to be sponsored by Louisville Slugger. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Paige. I appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Paige St. John. I'll be sure to provide the links to her podcast, Man in the Window, in the description of this episode. This episode was edited by Bradley Naiman, mixed by Mark Bird, and I want to send a special thank you to my friends over at the LA Times, Clint Schaff, Vanessa Kerwin, and Allison Therius for making this interview possible. Lastly, before we get out of here, check out my other show, Silent Giants, which highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And I provide the link for that in the description of this episode as well. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pa bless y'all. Till next time. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. What is a panic attack? You might get to see a hedgehog. I'm the world's first IVF baby. What a wonderful time to be alive. We're landing on the moon. (laughs) Every week, our podcast covers cutting-edge news, great stories, and hands-on science. Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Subscribe to the Naked Scientist on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. 
ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.